Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and today we have a true martial arts legend joining us. He is a ninth degree master of American Kempo, the founder of the esteemed Ohana Kempo Karate Association, and remarkable practitioner of the art. It is an honor to have him here today with us. His dedication to Kempo and his incredible journey in the martial arts world have inspired countless individuals. His martial arts story is nothing short of extraordinary, and we are thrilled to have the opportunity to delve into his journey further. Master Hale's journey began several decades ago under the guidance of the late senior Grandmaster Edmund Parker, the visionary founder of American Kempo. His teachings are instilled a profound understanding of Kempo Karate and shaped his approach to the art. But the story goes deeper as he also has the privilege of training with another remarkable instructor, 10th degree Kempo Grandmaster A.C. Rainey. His mentorship has been invaluable to his growth as a martial artist, refining his techniques and deepening his understanding in the art. Master Hale's journey and wisdom he's gained along the way make him a true authority in the realm of martial arts. His dedication to learning from the best and your unwavering commitment to excellence have paved the way for your remarkable achievements. I'm truly excited to explore the essence of Ahana Kempo Karate, to understand a profound connection between martial arts and the mind, and to uncover the principles that have made you an exceptional practitioner and instructor that you are. So ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts as we embark on an enlightening conversation with Master Rich Hale on the Mind Sensei podcast. Please give a warm welcome to the one and only Master Rich Hale. Thanks Mr. Rich Hale for joining us today. Welcome to the Mind Sensei podcast. One of the first few episodes, very proud to have you on, and thanks for your support. Let's kick this off with, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started in your martial arts journey. Well, the first thing I did, I started out in judo when I was 16. One of my best friends was a black belt in judo, and his dad owned the Anchorage School of Judo. To me, it was just a martial art, and I signed up and found out you couldn't hit and kick people. So I was quite disappointed. And eventually I left judo because I wasn't allowed to hit and kick. That's kind of what I thought martial arts were. I asked uh, if we could hit and kick, and they said no. And I said, well, where do you do that? They said karate. I said, are there any karate schools in Alaska or Anchorage? And they go, no. So eventually I left Alaska when I was 17, and I ended up in Big Bear Lake. And I found a karate school, a shore and roo school down in Victorville. I signed up. I was there only probably three or four months when I met a guy when I was driving back to Big Bear at a gas station. And back in that era, you didn't buy colored belts. You had to dye them. So when I dyed my belt to yellow, it came out kind of gold, like in Game of Death. It looked like a really cool belt. So I'm standing there pumping gas wearing my gold belt and this guy comes up and says do you study karate and i looked like yeah you know check me out he goes what style i didn't know the style at the time the school was called blackham and that's what i thought i was studying and he goes there's shotokan taekwondo kempo 
not got nothing. He says, what do you do? So what we hit and kick people and stuff. What, what do you do? He says, well, I study Ed Parker's Kempo. My first thought was Ed's karate does not sound very Asian to me. Uh, this guy said, well, we have concepts and theories and principles. And I said, well, we just hit and kick people. And it was really cool about how he did this. He said, do yourself a favor. When you get home, get the phone book and look up Ed Parker's Kempo and just give him a call. And it was the way he said it. He didn't say it condescendingly. It was like you and I talking. If I needed a car and you said, hey, Rich, I know where you can buy a great car, I would automatically follow your advice. So this total stranger said to call Ed Parker's Kempo. So I called, made an appointment, went there. And after my first lesson, I didn't even go back to my other school to say goodbye. It was such a vast difference. I felt like now I found what I was actually looking for. So at that, who was the instructor at the other school? At your first school? At the other school, I have no idea. You know, I was just a young guy. I go in, I sign up. To me, karate was karate. But the silly today is thinking I'm going to buy a car. Well, there's Fords and there's Chevys, there's trucks, there's SUVs. What? I just want a car. <laughs> well, I think to the unexperienced martial artist or someone that's trained like ourselves over here, I thought I was doing Kempo too, was doing Kempo. What it started off was Tracy slash Larderette. Then we switched to Van Wyke. Then we switched to Speakman. And then my journey continued on. We had the Parker Crest. And when you wear that, that means something. But to a new student like yourself, when you were, it just means that I do Kempo. And I, you think right. everyone does Kempo, but it's not until you get involved in the nitty gritty and the politics and stuff that you realize that there's actually quite a fair bit of meaning to the patch and why you wear it and what kind of patch you're wearing and why you're wearing that and why you aren't that at standard and all this sort of, unfortunately, follows with it. You know, I have to say, though, in that regard that when I joined Ed Parker's Kempo Karate 50-some years ago, I knew I was studying Ed Parker's. Since that time, <laughs> it's more and more and more of a gray area. I might think I am. Somebody else might think I'm not. It's a lot broader field than what we thought it was when we first signed up. In fact, what I tell a lot of people today is avoid the Internet in regard to trying to learn something about Kempo. I don't care what school you're in. Just do what that school is telling you to do. Yeah, correct. To go on the internet, well, he does it this way and he does it that way. It gets so frustrating. When I started, short form one was short form one. That was it. That's how it was done. And in my mind, that's how they did it at every Kempo school around the world. And of course, at that time, it might have been. 50 years ago, we didn't have nearly as many variations as what we have today. But I feel sorry for people today that go on and let's say they got their purple belt and somebody, well, what'd you have to do? Did you do the freestyle techniques? Did you do this? Did you do that? Well, uh, I just did what my teacher, well, then you're not a real purple belt if you didn't do this and didn't do that. And yet I go to these schools, like I have many schools I've gone to that said they do the freestyle techniques. We say, we do the entire system. I say, good, and I call off one. 
well, we don't, I mean, I don't memorize them, but we, we do them, but say, no, then you don't do them. If you know, if I say delayed sword and twirling wings and flashing wings and thundering hammers, you just do them. That's doing them. Having tinkered with the freestyle techniques doesn't mean you do them. Now, I'm not even a fan of them. I'm just saying, if you say you're going to do them, you should be able to do them as soon as somebody calls them off. I think they're a little bit of a mystic little part of Kempo too, with all the numbers and letters, um, unless you really do them. They're, they're difficult. They're, they're inherently bad. difficult yeah. to follow. And I think the sort of theory that, I don't know, what I've sort of come to understand is that with the freestyle techniques, they give you one, one A, they go on for, you know, 10 letters long. You can mix the codes up. It's, I don't think anyone can the... rattle them off the way they're done, you know, and the whole thing is no, just teach you how very to move. Few. Teach you how to move, you know, so give you the concept. But when Mr. Parker said that he named our techniques the way he did because it makes them easier to remember, he was right. Yeah, <laughs> correct. I, could you imagine, Peter, if I said, do number 49? Uh, dude, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, when you, depends on how you teach, I suppose. With some of the students I've had, I used to say, what's number five, blue belt? And they'd go, well, like swords or something, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, but uh, that's, yeah. Well, during that's, my prime, yeah, I can art. remember lots. <laughs> yeah, can right. I remember all of that today? No. No. Does it matter? I don't think so. You know, in Kempo, it's something I've really liked about it my whole life, and even talking to Mr. Parker about it, is that it's so vast that you can take anything you want from it. It'd be like if I'm hiking in the mountains, I can take a steep trail, a level trail, a short trail, a long one, a technical one. In Kempo, you can use it for exercise. You can use it for fighting. You can use it as an art. You can use it for stretching. You can do anything you want. And I've probably done all of it over the last 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. But I tailor it to not say tailoring the techniques, but tailoring the entire art to fit who I am and what I personally need at the time. A bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you studied with initially. So you ended up, and your first Kempo instructor, was that Mr. Parker or was that one of his seniors? My first instructor was a man by the name of Richard Callahan. Interestingly enough, as you'll find in a lot of the original instructors, they were already black belts when they went to Mr. Parker. The quick story on Rich is that Mr. Parker opened up a school in Colton, California, and he asked Rich if he would like to run the school. And Rich told him that he didn't know or study Ed Parker's Kempo. He goes, you don't need to. I'll send Huck by. And Huck would come by like once a month, spend several hours with Rich, teaching him material, maybe just a belt ahead of us. But as a really highly qualified black belt, nobody had to teach him how to kick, how to fight, how to block. You know, so when we were trying to learn everything, he's just learning material from Huck. So I did. I wasn't even aware of this at the time. When he's teaching me Delayed Sword, I figured he was a black belt in Kempo. No, he was just progressing above me. Uh, he At the time, he was a third-degree black belt in Kajikimbo Association under Al Reyes Sr. and Al Cascos. Okay. It was a related system, so it wasn't like a Shotokan black belt trying to teach us what to do. 
Well, he was my first instructor for about five years. And then uh, who was your instructor after that? So how did the journey progress? After on? that, I moved back to Alaska. So my quick story was I came from Alaska. I ended up in Big Bear Lake. So I'd spent five years down here in California and decided to move back to Alaska. So when I moved back to Alaska, I was a brown belt. And my good friend, Roger Thomas, who studied with me under Rich, went with me. It was kind of a funny story because I went in and said, hey, you guys, I love you all, but I'm moving back to Alaska. And that token invitation, does anybody want to go? And Roger went, I'll go. <laughs> You'll go? He goes, yeah, I'm 23 years old. I live with my parents and I work at Dairy Queen. I said, yeah, you can go. Okay. <laughs> so Roger and I went up to Alaska and we opened up a school together as brown belts. And we taught for about a year. During that time, kind of a intermediate story here is how I met Ed Parker. Because I'm at the school. And as I mentioned, Rich Callahan was a great martial artist. And he's very well known among our seniors. But he was not a Kempo guy. And Ed Parker's Kempo guy. So when I learned the material from Rich, all I learned was techniques and forms and sets. I didn't learn, there was no talk of principles or underlying motion in it at all. Well, when I got to Alaska, I just studied and studied and I felt like something was missing. And I thought to myself, well, let's go to the source. Let's call Ed Parker. So I dialed up 411 was information. I said, do you have a number for an Ed Parker in Pasadena, California? And they go, yeah, and they gave it to me. So I called the number, somebody answered and I said, is Mr. Parker there? And he said, speaking. And I froze. I just <laughs> realized I'm talking to Ed Parker. I go, hello, Mr. Parker, my name's Rich Hale. I teach Ed Parker's Kempo Karate in Anchorage, Alaska. You go, who's your teacher? I said, Rich Callahan. He goes, I love Rich Callahan. What can I do for you? I said, well, sir, I know techniques. I know forms. I'm a good fighter. But honestly, there's something missing, and, and I don't know what it is. I said, what do I do? And he said, you get on an airplane and you come see me. So I got on an airplane. I went down to see Mr. Parker. I get to the house, and I took the same tour. He showed me all the Elvis memorabilia. We sat on the couch and talked, and he demoed. He took me out to his office. He showed me that hidden safe that he shows everyone in his office where he has a couple of guns in it there back with the books. And I'm leaving thinking, wow, this is great. And as I'm leaving, he says, when will you be back? You want me back? <laughs> and I'm thinking, dude, if you got a basement, I got a sleeping bag, I'll move in. I started going back. And at the time I was going back maybe three or four months, maybe six months. That went on for about a year and a half. And then a man by the name of A.C. Rainey, who is a black belt under Dave Hebler and Mr. Parker came in and joined my school. So now I had a black belt in the school to carry me forward. Yet I was studying with Ed Parker a little bit, you know, here and there. But then AC became my real instructor, my daily instructor, who carried me up to my next level. 
Interesting. So that's how you met AC Rainey then, and he's currently still your instructor. Is that right? Yes. So have you heard the story? Yeah. I have what not, I no. did to AC when he came in. No, no, no. Let's, that, <laughs> Honestly, I, my favorite story. I've got a lot uh, of stories. Let, let's hear the AC Rainey story. This is a. This is an absolute favorite. So AC Rainey comes walking into the school, and he's also a policeman. So it's intimidating. You know, a policeman walks into your, your building. Like, I didn't do it. So anyway, he comes in and says, do you teach Kempo? And he knows what Kempo is. I go, yes. Is it, is it Ed Parker's Kempo? Yes. He goes, I'm a black belt in Ed Parker's Kempo. Oh, man. To me, it was just, you know, my savior just walked into the room. And I said, please, come in. Come into my office. Let's talk. So he sits down. I immediately grab that old dial telephone and I'm. And he looked at me like, you are rude. I go, just a quick call, please keep talking. I'll just get this right quick. And he's looking at me. Well, then it gets Mr. Parker. It's Mr. Parker, Rich Hale. Yeah. Hey, great, sir. Hey, I got a guy in my office. His name is AC. Yeah. Yes, 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 sir. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> then AC gets the phone. But yes, sir. No, sir. No, I'll never be out of touch. No. Yes. No, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> I am cracking up. He is squirming. And then he has me the phone back. And I look and he's already gone. He already hung out. So I put it down and AC is pumped up. And he's quite the athlete. Just, Don't you ever do something like that to me again. Oh, apparently I won't have to. I said, you said you knew Ed Parker. I was just checking. <laughs> and I said, apparently you do. And he's still pumped. And he goes, who's your head instructor? I said, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so now that's 40 years ago. And he's been my teacher ever since. Nice. Nice. Oh, good story. I like that. Well, I haven't met Mr. Yeah. Rainey yet, so hopefully you can make that introduction because I would like to. I've got him on the list because, you know, as, oh, yourself, yeah. as yourself, I like to be a bit of a nomad and travel and get it straight from the horse's mouth of every. My, my issue is when I hear stories and hearsay and, you know, embellished pieces, I go and speak to the person from the story and say, yeah. you know, there's this story going around like you just did, you know. Hey, Mr. Parker, I've got this person here and say, and this is what they say. And then, oh, does that start a whole new conversation? <laughs> you know, what I found in stories, there is a certain consistency, especially if you're looking for an Ed Parker story. Like, what did Ed Parker do? What did he think? How did he act? How did he treat people? What were you allowed to do within the art? There is a certain consistency among all the seniors in Kempo. The stories should fall within those basic guidelines. I just heard one recently from an individual that started studying with Tommy Burks. And Tommy is, I believe he's still the president of the IKKA now, or the head of it, or representing the, the daughters in the IKKA. And it was such a, a great story. He had told this guy that when he started with Ed Parker, he was like me a crossover black belt. You already studied with somebody else and now you're with Mr. Parker. And I was curious what Tommy's background was. And Tommy told him that 
Mr. Parker said, I don't want to teach you techniques and forms. I want to teach you Kempa. And that struck me because that's exactly what he told me. When I went in, he said, I don't want to teach you techniques and forms. Anybody can do that. I want to teach you Kempo. And I thought, thundering hammer, twirling wings, that, that is Kempo. Because that's what I learned, those techniques. If you do those techniques, you're doing Kempo. And I just sat there and nodded thinking, I got no idea what you mean. And eventually I realized that he didn't really care how the techniques went per se. You could use a hand sword or a hammer fist. You could use an elbow or a knee. What he cared about were you applying the principles to everything that you were doing. And that was Kempo to Mr. Parker. It was the application of the principles. Just to quickly interrupt you there. Here's a yeah. question and a debate that probably nearly every Kempoist has. Sure. What, if you had to summarize Kempo in a few words, what would you summarize it as? Kempo well, in, in regard to yeah. Ed Parker's Kempo, because Kempo now has become, it's a term like car. Well, you could say car might be martial arts. And then say Ford is Kempo and Chevy is Taekwondo, you know? Yeah. But then underneath of that, there's many Fords and many Chevys. But to say Ed Parker's, if you're studying Ed Parker's Kempo, you are doing your best to apply the principles of motion to the techniques that he outlined. And you can do Kempo, even American Kempo, without doing his techniques per se. But if you're going to do, in my opinion, Ed Parker's Kempo, you will follow his techniques, not to the absolute letter, but that will be your baseline where you start from. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, had this conversation with quite a few people, and one of them being Edmund, Edmund Ed Parker Jr., Mr. Parker's son, and um, <clears throat> he relates it to his father said he only wanted to <clears throat> teach people how to think. That was his, his goal. That would be true. That'd be true. So what, what attracted you to the style? Did you ask for Kempo or did you stumble across it or? No, I, I absolutely stumbled across it. But I, I think one of the most interesting things is when I was at this previous school, they promoted people very quickly. I remember one day I walk in, I'm still a white belt. And this young kid, black belt, maybe a couple of years younger than me, I was prob I was 20 at the time, saw my clothes hanging on his hook, took them and threw them on the bench and says, whose clothes are on my hook? And then he hung his up there. I looked at him and realized I can beat you in a fight. And I thought, there's something wrong with this school. If this kid's a black belt, and I can beat him in a fight. I didn't think it was just wrong. Well, then when I came into the Kempo school and they asked me what rank I was, I said, I'm yellow, but I'm almost green. Okay, would you like to wear a yellow belt or a green belt or a white belt? And I go, well, no, I'll wear a white belt. I was so glad. <laughs> All the yellow belts were better than anybody at our school. And a green belt was like a karate expert in my mind. And I just saw the quality of the people in this school were so far and above 
and also how they treated one another and how the teacher acted and everything it was just so elevated but it was luck you know if i stumbled onto a good shotokan school i'd be a shotokan guy probably today so whose school was that rich rich callahan's that's rich the one that i originally yeah. Yeah. came to in colton yeah your current instructor ac rainey tell us what impressed you about him ac has probably got the best physical tools I've ever seen in Kempo or in karate. Physically, he's just extremely dynamic and powerful and fast and confident. He, he was like everything I wanted to grow up to be. So when you, when you talk about AC Rainey, he, he's got the best physical tools that I've ever seen in somebody as a martial artist. He's extremely powerful and fast and dynamic, confident. He's just like a martial artist, martial artist. And when he came into my school and I was a pretty good fighter and to just be annihilated by somebody else was an amazing thing. And we fought because all there was was me and him and Roger on that level and then the students. So I had years of getting to fight with him. And in fact, I remember another great story. You're familiar with Paul Dye. Paul Dye and AC were roommates when they got into Kempo. And they took all the furniture out of their apartment and they did Kempo 24-7. And they went through the ranks together and got black belt together. So when AC came to Anchorage and I spent a couple of years with AC and he was always talking about Paul Dye. So I get back down to Santa Monica and people are saying, oh, Paul dies here. Paul dies here. I said, you're Paul Dye? He goes, yeah, who are you? And I'm Rich Hale. I'm ACs at my school in Anchorage. You're Rich Hale? Let's fight. <laughs> okay. So Paul and I fought. We cleared the mat. I'd hit him. He'd bounce off the wall and hit me and I'd fly down and come up underneath. And we fought and fought. And after we were done, I said, damn, you are Paul Dye, aren't you? And he goes, yeah, and you are Rich Hale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you we had that. He knew that if I'm with AC, that we're going to fight, and it's going to be a good fight. And a person, most wonderful person there is. I mean, he just steals the hearts of everybody that he comes in contact with. Okay. So it was a blessing. I was very fortunate to spend... I was under AC's instruction, immediate instruction, from about 81 to 84. And then I moved back down to California. And although he doesn't teach me regularly anymore, I still look at him as my teacher. Every time I watch him and see him teach, I still learn something. I keep him in that position. One of the fun things with him is that when I got my last promotion, he gave me his belt. And it's a shaggy old belt. One, he trains a lot. And two, he whips his hips back and forth so fast and so hard. His belts just wear out really fast. So I got this old shaggy belt. And then I had taken AC to a seminar with me. And I'm standing there wearing his belt. 
I say, I know what you guys are thinking. You're looking at my belt and thinking, man, that man's put a lot of work in. I says, you know, I can't tell you how long it took me to wear this belt out to this stage. And I glance over at AC and AC looked because you didn't wear that belt out. I wore that belt out. <laughs> and I said, because I didn't wear this belt out. AC wore this belt out. He gave it to me. <laughs> and you know what? I think the students really liked out of that was I'm not one of those look at me karate master guys that hooks his thumb in his belt and walks around and tells everybody they're doing it wrong. I'm a, a real person. In fact, it was in Australia when I was down visiting you. One of the guys came up to me and said, Mr. Hale, you know, you're just like a real person. I said, well, technically I am. He goes, no, no, I mean, I said, I know what you mean. And I really appreciate that. I, I don't ever want to be that pompous instructor that walks around telling everybody they're doing it wrong. And that's my upbringing, but I'm lucky. I've been under Rip Callahan. I've been under A.C. Rainey. I've spent my time with Mr. Parker, of course, influenced by people like Huck, Frank Trejo, and Ron Chappelle, a lot of the great people in Kempo that had virtually dedicated their life to giving other people that art. So, so I just got lucky. When did you achieve your black belt? I got my black belt, I think, in 1981. Yeah, it took me quite a while to get my black belt. I did notice there was another question in regard to testing. I've never tested for black belt. In fact, I was an orange belt for four years. I never cared, and I wouldn't test. So back then, were there were there the colored belts that there are now, or were they just yeah? Were they same yeah, when I started still in seventy, nine. it was. Nine we belts. had the same belts. We had the tip on the belt. I always felt honestly inadequate for any and every belt I've ever had. And I know there's this clever thing in Kempo that says when you're getting promoted that the L shape of the belts can stand for legacy and this and that and lie. And if it's a lie and you don't think you deserve this belt, then walk away. Now, I, I didn't walk away <laughs> yeah. from my first, second, third, fourth degree black belt. But in all honesty, I'm thinking I'll grow into it. <laughs> uh, I've never seen anyone walk away from it. So <laughs> no, I, I haven't either. You know, especially after a three or four hour grading, no one's going anywhere. So. Yeah. There was a, a time at Pasadena Studio. I get in there and I meet this guy that was kind of out of shape. You can see he really knew Kempo, but he was rusty and we're training we got to be kind of buddies and we're banging on each other and then there was a test that day i remember john conway was testing for fourth degree black belt that day and john is a great martial artist and i remember back then every technique he finished with a jump spinning back kick that guy could just fly up float around bam perfect kick landed again i mean he was amazing he was really the star of that of that test well, this guy that was there, Frank had brought him in and said, look, there's a test. Maybe it'll get you motivated. It'll get you back into the school. So just come in and sit on the board. So he's on the board. Mr. Parker 
promoted these guys and then looked at the guys on the board and said, and you're all promoted too. So this guy, I think, was the second. And he goes, man, Rich, I come in here as a, a lousy second. And now I'm even a worse third. I said, well, you know, you can not accept the promotion. And he laughed and said, I'll grow into it. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> really quickly on that, to sum that up, I was promoted along the way. Uh, when I got, I got my black belt from AC Rainey. That was awarded to me. And it kind of makes sense. You got three guys at a school and your students. He trains with me every day. And at a given point in time, he came up and awarded both Roger and I our black belts. And then with Mr. Parker, he called me one day and said, I want to recognize you as a black belt in the IKKA. What date do you want on your certificate? I'm a smart ass. I'm thinking, oh, 1963. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started karate in 1970. <laughs> and I go, well, it was only a couple months after AC promoted me. So I picked the date that AC promoted me. And he said, I'm going to send you the small certificate. He said, we have large certificates now. When your material reaches my new standard, I will give you the large certificate. But for now, you get the small one. And I'm thinking, I get one. I'm cool. So he sent me a certificate for first black dated the same day. And I just felt it was an honor that Mr. Parker would call me and tell me that he wanted me to be a black belt in his association. But I also respected him in that he gave it to me on a small certificate because I wasn't good enough to have the big certificate. And then a few years later, I got my second degree and Mr. Parker gave it to me on the big certificate. And he signed on both sides as my instructor and the president. So that was cool. That's pretty cool. So tell me, do you have any really cool stories of interactions with Mr. Parker that you can you can share? I have a lot of them. I really do. What are the memorable ones? I'm going to start with a very unusual one that absolutely nobody has ever heard before. Well, people in the garage have heard it, but not publicly. Okay, a favorite story that I have with Mr. Parker isn't a Kempo story. I had gone to the house many times and I had seen all the guns and all the jewelry and the big robe that Elvis wore in the Elvis comeback tour in Hawaii. And I was in the alarm industry and I said, Mr. Parker, would you like to have an alarm? Well, why? I said, you got a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay. So I went down there and I spent weeks and I loved it because I went through every nook and cranny in Mr. Parker's house from the attic to the basement. After I got the alarm all installed, Mr. Parker was fascinated that on the back patio door, he couldn't find the wire. Well, I have drill bits that are six feet long, so I could drill from most obscure places. And he's looking and figuring the system out and he's looking for the wire and he goes, where's this wire? 
I cannot find the line. Where did you put it? I go, Mr. Parker, you're the master of your system. I'm the master of mine. You find the wire. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just held my breath. I thought, I've just committed suicide. He didn't actually laugh, but he didn't kill me. So I think it went over okay. <laughs> Did he find the wire? <laughs> no. There's no way he'd ever find the wire. <laughs> and and then another story that I, I really liked, I, I've told this one a lot, is the shortest lesson ever. My lessons were at 10 o'clock Wednesday mornings. I was always nervous around Mr. Parker, even after years of being with him. It, it was just kind of like he, he never lost that charisma of being Ed Parker. So when I go to the house, I would look at my watch and I'd wait for 10 o'clock and then I would knock on the door. I had no idea if I could get there early or late, but I figured this is Ed Parker. I'm at 10 o'clock. He'd go, come in. And he never said it friendly. <laughs> I think he enjoyed it. So I go in. And I walk in the front door and he gets this knife and goes, we're working on knife techniques today. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And then he puts the knife down and he gets the scabbard, picks it up and he puts blue chalk on all the edges. And I think, okay, I'm not going to die. And he says, dab me. So I get it and I'm thinking, okay, I'm pretty quick. I go in and takes it away and he's attacking me and I'm defending and he stopped and goes, so how do you think you did? I said, I think I did good. I never felt him stab me. He goes, Rich Hale, I think you should look in the mirror. So I go to this mirror. I had a blue streak here, 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 and here. And I just looked at that. <sighs> and he said, I think this is enough today. What do you think? Uh, I left. I don't know if I even said goodbye. I'm out on the porch and I look at my watch and it was 10.02. <laughs> so the best, most humbling inspiring karate lesson of my life took two minutes with Ed Parker. <laughs> and you died a few times. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> That's really good. Do you have any other stories that you, you want to share at all? Because there never seems to be an end of stories of Mr. Parker that people have and traveling the world and meeting other people and hearing the stories, you can always relate them, but you sort of miss out some of the details. And they never sound as good as when the person who relates them delivers them. One of the things people always say is an old wives' tale. If anybody had the nerve to stand up to Ed Parker and tell him this or that, he would have been the chosen one and been given the system and all this stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't true. A lot of people stood up to Ed Parker. I had a conversation with him once where I said, Mr. Parker, I would like to have three relationships with you. And he just looked at me. I said, one, 
student teacher. You tell me what to do, I don't question it. You're the teacher, I'm the student. I said, business, business we need to negotiate because he wanted 10% of my school in Alaska to call it Ed Parker Skempo. Well, at the time, I was on television up to 20 times a day. And I was spending in the 70s anywhere between 30 and $40,000 a month on advertising for my business. So I'm constantly on TV. And I said, honestly, sir, nobody knows who you are. There's more money in Rich Hales Kempo than Ed Parker's. I'm technically doing you a favor using your name. Did <laughs> <laughs> <And> you duck? <laughs> and then he looked, I did. I mean, I, I, I know that I cringed. I didn't put my hands up, but I know I cringed. And he said, for you, 5% will be okay. <laughs> I said, so we need to negotiate on a business level. And I just sat there and he goes, you said three relationships. I go, well, you know, I've gone from Alaska to Venezuela, from Hawaii to New York. I've fought everything on two feet. I am a black belt. I have opinions. Sometimes I would like to just walk into you and tell you what I think without you saying anything. Because if you say something first, or if I ask you something, I will not argue with you. I would just like to express my opinion on occasion. He sat there and he said, the first two relationships are good. We'll try the third one. <laughs> nice. And then one of the very first times I came back in was I'm not a big proponent of doing techniques on both sides. I'll debate it with anybody who would like to, but I won't argue the point. And I feel, here's what I told Mr. Parker. I said, Mr. Parker, I just got back from one of my travels and I visited a school who insisted on everything being done on both sides. I am against that. I believe number one, we are all dominant, either on the right-hand side or like a good friend of mine started out left-handed, but in Kempo, he became right-handed because you think about it, you just learn a technique. That's the side it's on. And if most tacks are coming from the right, because most people are right-handed, most defenses are right dominant as well. And I said, I don't believe you should work so much on the left. People have told me if, if your techniques aren't good enough on the left, do them five times as much. I go, good. Now, both sides suck because my left is never going to be as good as my right. And my right's not any good either because I've been wasting all my time on the left. And he says, I hate it. And I just panicked. I thought I'm in trouble. He goes, I hate it when people carve everything I say into stone. And I, I'm clueless. He says, I visit a school. They're doing their techniques. I say, I'd like to see that one on the left side. The left side, left side, left side. I come back 10 years later. I have a left-handed Kempo school. <laughs> All because he said something. Yeah. And he goes, Rich Hale, I'll tell you one reason for doing the left side. And I go, okay, I'm kind of leaning in. He says, 
because your left side is not powerful. You could do a lot of things on your right-hand side incorrectly and make them work because you're powerful and you're strong and you're competent. He says the only way to make a technique work on your weak side is to do it correctly. So learn how to do it correctly. Find your weaknesses. Take that knowledge to the right side or your strong side and make it even better. When we talk right and left, Mr. Parker would really avoid right and left and talk about your strong and your weak side, understanding some people are stronger on their left. So it wasn't left and right per se. It was strong and weak side. It, it, it's it's uh, funny you mentioned that story because in the years of my travels and teachings, I always say to my students, if you want to improve your right-hand side, practice it on the left because exactly what you said, yeah, you, you need to and, do it and right. And it's true. And it'll help improve But it's your, not your like if side. you go out and fight. No. You know, here's something, Peter, this is two things where I've proven this to myself. One is in, I'll get the funny one first, hunting for lobster. I'm a very avid scuba diver, and I get probably anywhere between 100 and 100, 120 lobster a year, I catch them with my right hand. Now, I can sit here and go, got me a lobster, got me a lobster. They look identical. But I lose a lot of lobster with that hand. <laughs> they, they look the same. They seem the same. I can practice them. I can work for hours. But now that I'm actually trying to grab a lobster, and I'm catching them with my right, and they're getting away with my left. Well, in fact, when I circle a formation, I always go counterclockwise because when I reach for a lobster, when I see it, my arm articulates this direction, and I can grab it. But if I go clockwise, I'd have to use my left hand because the right arm won't articulate into the hole. So... I see a formation, I automatically circle it so that my dominant arm catches it. And then improving this out to myself further is in jujitsu. Uh, my instructor, Rodrigo Atunes, I asked him, do I need to know how to attack and do all of my techniques on both sides? And he goes, no, you can attack from one side. I go, good. He says, but, you must learn how to defend from both sides. Oh, that makes sense. If I'm in side control, I don't pick which side of me he's on. But if I'm in side control and I want to switch to the other side or something, there will always be a jiu-jitsu technique I can do from a dominant position. But you got to defend on both sides. So this is just my opinion on that and that's how I took it to Mr. Parker and he did not agree or disagree. And he was like that a lot. He, he would not necessarily say you are right, nor are you wrong, but he would give you information so you still come up with your own decision and he'll let you live with that decision, right or wrong. In fact, let me tell you a quick story. This guy comes in, I, as I got to the house, this guy is just leaving and as he's leaving, oh, 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 Mr. Parker, 
I was wondering, could I do this technique this way? And he showed him and Mr. Parker said, yes. And the guy left. I'm looking and Mr. Parker actually is grinning. What? Mr. Parker, that was not right. He goes, I know. Why did you? He asked me if he could do it that way. The answer is yes. It is not my problem that he did not ask the right question. He did not ask me if it would be correct to do it that way. I said, but now he's out there telling people you approved it. I cannot help certain people. Okay. <laughs> that was Mr. Parker, though. He gave you a tremendous amount of freedom. And he did it, he did it with me as well. I thought I knew everything there was about Kempo. I thought I knew every single technique correctly because when I'd get to the house, I'd do a technique. He never told me I did the technique wrong. All he worked on was making sure the principles become instilled into what I was doing. Yet I would leave. And of course, once you did, <clears throat> let's say you did Leaping Crane with Ed Parker, you go home and you get the book and you read it because you're all about Leaping Crane now. You just did it with Ed Parker. I would read all kinds of techniques that I did not do according to the book. And he never, ever cared. All he cared about was, if that's how I did the technique, fine. But let's make sure you're applying the principles of Kempo to what you're doing. The forms was a different story. He would really chastise the forms. And if you go back and look, at our books from the 70s all the way through, the techniques have changed to a degree, but the forms are virtually unchanged. That he had pretty much dialed in. So when I would do something that he did not approve of in a form, he would correct that and tell me to do it differently, unlike a technique. That leads us into the next question. And have you cross-trained? So you mentioned you've done some jiu-jitsu training. Tell us about that, that journey. I got into jiu-jitsu about 10 years ago. And in the last 10 years, I would say my proficiency in jiu-jitsu would be two to three years. First, I was fortunate enough to get in with a bunch of guys that were really good and everything, but you're nothing but cannon fodder. So my first couple, three years, all you do is you show up. They never, ever taught a single technique. You just rolled. And you just got your butt handed to you each day. And you learned by being submitted, I guess. And then I joined up in another school, a Gracie Baja Academy, which I really did like. And I love my instructor. I was there for about a year and I got my blue belt. And the school just closed. He was a great teacher, but the school didn't make it. And then I joined up with Rodrigo Tunes, who is a very high level, very proficient jiu-jitsu black belt, born and raised in Rio de Janeiro. He had studied since he was, I think, seven. So he really grew up in jiu-jitsu. And he has been my instructor ever since that time. And unfortunately, he moved. 
to Florida, but I still carry on under his instruction. I'm a purple belt in jiu-jitsu, which in jiu-jitsu compared to Kempo, our belts are white, blue, purple, brown, and black. A purple belt in jiu-jitsu is considerably more proficient than a purple belt in Kempo. I would say a purple belt, honestly, in jiu-jitsu would be the equivalent of a good Kempo brown belt. Once you're a brown belt in jiu-jitsu, you're a black belt in waiting. And black belts in jiu-jitsu are pretty good. So there, there's a there's a big difference. But let me tell you something about the two, is that my Kenpo has not really even helped me that much in jujitsu. It has in the in the idea that I can remember techniques well, because we all had to memorize techniques. But as far as am I good at jujitsu because I'm a high level black belt in Kenpo? No, I sucked. I was really bad, just like everybody that doesn't really know how to grapple. Now, the value I've gotten from jiu-jitsu back to my Kempo is tremendous. And again, it goes back to the principles. We have a problem in Kempo, and that is that if I tell you I am going to do a rear crossover hammer fist and I'm going to anchor my elbow, I'm going to torque my body, I'm going to drive into you, I'm going to tilt your body that I hit you at a certain angle so I can tear through the tissue. And you just, it's like dim mark. If I did this touch, you'll die. But I can't touch you because you'll die. Well, you can't prove any of it. So in Kempo, it's hard. I can't hit them like that to prove the principles work. Whereas in Jiu-Jitsu, if I have you in a rear naked choke, and I have you in that position, and then I lift my elbow, and you, you just tap instantaneously, you can prove the principles in jiu-jitsu. Like, if my choke doesn't work, don't pass out. In Kempo, there has to be a certain degree, any karate, any striking style, there's a certain degree of, you just got to believe me, because I can't do this to you. But what it did is reinstill the principles of Kenpo. It reinforced them even more because jujitsu is a purely principle-based system. And you, you learn and you earn so much more respect for the principles in jujitsu and you bring back to Kenpo and you dig into the principles even deeper and you have that much more faith in them. So jujitsu has helped my Kenpo tremendously. your organization so you do have your own organization yeah so let's um yeah so i understand you have your own organization can you tell us a little bit about that what it's called and um, what it's all about and <laughs> what students you have sure it's it's called the uh, the ohana kempo karate association and i am probably the most non-association of all associations out there first i'll tell you how why I created it in the first place. I had a student, Travis Brocker, and Travis was getting ready for black belt. 
I am a black belt in the International Kempo Karate Association, and I got this glorious big certificate. At the time, I taught under the name Pacific Kempo. And I thought, man, I want to give Travis something more than a little certificate from a school that says Pacific Kempo. So I decided to create an organization. I called it the Ohana Kempo Karate Association, and I made a big, beautiful, glorious certificate. And I called a buddy of mine, Dave Crouch. I said, hey, Dave, have you heard about my association? He goes, you have an association? I go, yeah. Well, how many people are in it? I go, well, that depends. Do you want in? He goes, yeah. I said, two. <laughs> he goes, two. I go, yeah, I want to promote Travis. So he'll be three. And I did the whole thing just so I could give Travis a cool looking certificate like mine. Well, that went on. And then I had a friend of mine, Tony Shelton, who I did not know at the time, a very, very dear friend now, called me and said, Mr. Hale, I'm down in Texas, Plano, Texas, and we're interested in joining your association. He must have seen the certificate. I go, are you sure? <laughs> and he goes, well, yes, sir. I go, okay, I'll say, here's, I'll tell you what I need you to do, because you're down in Texas. Spend the next year looking for a better choice. And if you can't find one over the next year, call me and we'll talk. A year later, he called me and said, no, sir, we want to join you. I said, okay. So I went down there and really quick interlude story there. He says, now our instructor has been a second for like 15 years. Do you think there's a possibility you could test and maybe promote him while you're here? I go, absolutely. I said, now. When I test him, he must accept whatever rank I give him. And I'll tell you right now, there is a whole lot better chance that he'll be a brown belt when I leave than a third degree black. He goes, well, maybe just come meet us this first trip and get to know us. And we'll talk about getting promoted later. I said, that's a good idea too. Let's do that. So I went down and they joined and they were the first school in my association. Now I've got schools here and there that have joined, but we don't solicit them. And the only rule in my association is we're not allowed to ask anybody to join. We cannot. I've told my people, you will not solicit anyone. It's just not why we're there. It, it was a, it just came about and it happened. And now there are some people that I really care about and it's a, a good, strong, small organization. But we are not trying to be a new IKKA. We're not, I, I've seen people that if you join, you're, if you live in California and you join, you're the head of California. If you happen to be in Costa Rica and you join, you're the head of Costa Rica. And if you join, what rank are you now? You're a third, you'll be a fourth the moment you join. I've actually had people solicit one of my guys in Chile and say, what are you now? He goes, well, I'm a, I'm a third. I'll make you a fifth if you leave Mr. Hale and join us. So many associations today, that's all they are. They just want everybody. 
They don't care about the art. They don't care about the people. They just want numbers. So we're kind of an anti-organization organization. You're an anti-organization by being an organization. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so like an oxymoron, yeah? <laughs> it is. We're an oxymoron when it comes to organizations. Except this no is our crest. There was that deal. This. I'm glad we're doing this thing on the iPad because I looked around for a crest and I go, I don't have one sitting here, and but I do. This is the so, so tell us a little bit about your crest. It happens to be the cover of my iPad. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your crest. Well, the crest, of course, is the shape of Mr. Parker's crest because that's a lot of our roots. The inside of it is based off of Rich Callahan's crest. And these are what's called the reeds of life, the, the green. So as the leaves go up there, that has the reeds of life. And it shows you start very young and small, and you realize you're a white belt. As you grow up in those reeds of life, you get bigger and bigger up to black belt. And as you keep progressing, you realize how small you really are. And when you get to the top, you are actually see yourself smaller than when you started. Okay. The character at the top is eternity. And that just means that's what you're, what you're studying is for eternity. The belt itself, I can get in there and you can see it has the black belt yep. with the red line around it. Yeah. That was Rich Callahan's belt. Now, when Rich Callahan got that belt, it was in Hawaii in 1969 with Al Reyes and Al Dacascos. And they tested him with everything he knew in the martial arts. They gave him a third degree black belt in the Kajukimbo Association. And they gave him separately a teaching credential, which is something, almost another story that I think we need in the martial arts is not just a belt, but a teaching credential. In other words, you got a certificate when you graduated high school, but are you allowed to teach school? Yeah, no. correct. Yeah. You can drive a car, but can I teach driving? I can be a pilot, but can I teach flying? No. And a lot of people can be great black belts. It doesn't make them teachers. Yeah, so Rich definitely. had the teaching credential. Now what they did was that they gave him that belt and said the red line around that belt signifies you are the head of your own style. Rich wore that belt from the day I met him to the day I got black belt and he gave me his belt. Well, now, obviously, it doesn't mean I'm the head of my own style or system. What it means is now I wear Rich Callahan's belt. So I wore that belt for years until it wore out and I had a new one made with that red line around it. And all it signified to me was in honor of my instructor. So that is technically the official belt of my association. People may wear that belt at any black belt rank, but they are not required to. We also wear the Ed Parker belts as chosen. So it's kind of like my personal belt in honor of my instructor. That's, uh, that's quite nice. I like that. And that wraps up part one of our incredible conversation with Master Rich Hale on the Mind Sensei podcast.
we have explored the profound journey of this martial arts legend. From his training under the late senior grandmaster Edmund Parker, to his invaluable mentorship with 10th degree grandmaster A.C. Rainey. Master Hale's dedication to Kempo Karate and his unwavering commitment to excellence has shaped him into a remarkable practitioner and instructor he is today. We've gained invaluable insights into the essence of Vahana Kempo Karate and the profound connection between martial arts and the mind. But fear not, dear listeners, as this is only part one of our conversation with Master Rich Hale. In part two, we'll delve deeper into his exploring specific aspects of his practice, the guiding principles that drive him, and the transformative impact of martial arts and personal growth and mindset. So make sure you stay tuned for our next episode, where we continue enlightening conversation with Master Rich Hale on the Mind Sensei podcast. Thank you for joining us today, and remember, keep seeking knowledge and embracing the power of martial arts to elevate your mind, body, and spirit. And thank you to Mr. Rich Hale for being on the Mind Sensei podcast with us today. For people who want to reach out and contact Mr. Hale, they can find more information at the Ohana Kempo Karate Association website, which can be found at www.ohanakenpo.com. Or you can look up richhale.com to contact him further. Or you can look up the links that we're going to place in the show notes. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei Podcast from Down Under. We want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei Podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at mindsensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.